Heavenly Father, you are infinitely beautiful and glorious. And you have been revealed to us by your word. And so I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would help us to catch a glimpse of you this day. Lord, we know that your word does not go forth and return to you empty. And so we pray that your word would go forth in power this day and would accomplish that for which you purpose it. Come, Holy Spirit, and have your way with us and in us. Come and succeed in building up your church this day. For we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We are coming near to the end of Paul's letter to the Romans. We are in chapter 15 this morning. And we're going to start in verse 7, get a little run and start. And we're going to read through verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. But I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who raises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. O come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, great things he has done. We know the words to this familiar hymn, to God be the glory penned by the woman known as the queen of gospel songwriters. Many of you might be aware that she was a prolific poet, lyricist and composer, writing close to 9,000 hymns and gospel songs. What you might not know is that Fanny Crosby was also a missionary. In fact, Crosby did not identify herself primarily as a gospel songwriter. She identified herself primarily as a missionary serving among the urban rescue missions in New York City where she lived, she gave away all of her royalties earned from her writing to this cause. And really, 
She viewed her songwriting as a form of evangelism and mission. Her prayer was that her songs would bring people to Christ. And so we see in this song, To God Be the Glory, this understanding that was lived out in her life that worship and mission are inextricably bound together. It is a call for all people to come and to worship God the Father through Jesus the Son, giving Him the glory for what He has done. The Apostle Paul is leading us here in Romans 15 to this very same truth. While we might only see these verses as Paul's closing remarks for this particular issue in the church in Rome between the weak and the strong in faith, these verses actually play a much larger role. They are not simply a summary of this section of Romans begun in chapter 14. They are not simply about a dispute between Jewish and Gentile Christians. They are, as many commentators have noted, really a summing up of the entire letter. These few verses capture Paul's main concern in the letter, which is the glory and praise of God throughout all of creation. Do you remember how Paul began his epistle? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. As biblical scholar Thomas Schreiner puts it so succinctly, Paul's passion for the Gentile mission was motivated by a desire to bring glory to Jesus' name. So Paul begins his letter with this in mind, and he proceeds to diagnose the fallen human condition. Before Paul gets out of the first chapter, he tells us the effect of our fallen nature, that it is our worship that has become misdirected. We have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of created things and have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. His mission, as we will see, is to bring people to worship the Lord, to recover the worship of God that was lost in the fall, giving glory to God that is due to his name. Therefore, here in these verses in chapter 15, Paul's concern is that a unified voice of praise be lifted up to God by this community of Jews and Gentiles, revealing the fulfillment of God's ultimate purpose, which is that his name would be honored and praised among all peoples. This is the reason why Paul is so intent to address this issue in the church in Rome, it's not merely a sociological issue. It isn't merely about customs of diet and holidays. This is an issue of worship. The church is called to demonstrate the reality of God's kingdom in its life together, and especially in its worship, in order that God might be glorified. 
There is a unity in Christ that transcends all boundaries of race and culture and ethnicity. And if the church intends to glorify God according to his desires, by demonstrating this reality of redemption and reconciliation, then worship needs to be in one unified, harmonious voice. And so we see here that Paul has shifted his language. Did you notice this? Paul's no longer talking about the weak and the strong. He's talking about the Jew and the Gentile. What has been implicit up until this point has now become explicit for the sake of this shift in focus. Why? Because the church reveals the reality of God's that the reality of God's purposes have been and are being fulfilled. The nations, the Gentiles have joined together with Israel in worshiping the one true God. And this is all for the purpose of bringing glory to God in all the earth. For God's glory, Christ became a servant to the circumcised, the Jew, to show God's faithfulness or God's covenant, to show God's truthfulness or God's covenant faithfulness. This is verse 8 here in chapter 15. But listen to what Jesus prays before his betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion. This is recorded in John's gospel. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Having served God's purposes of making God's name great in all the earth and bringing about salvation, Jesus is praying here that he now might return to the glory that he set aside in the incarnation when he left his throne in heaven and condescended to earth, taking on human flesh, becoming a humble servant, even to the point of death on a cross. But this salvation was not only to the Jews fulfilling the promises that God had made to the patriarchs, but it's also to the Gentiles in order that God's name might be exalted and he might be worshipped by all peoples of all nations. We see this is already happening in Jesus' ministry as he encounters the Samaritan woman at the well. If you recall, the conversation quickly moves from water to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when... Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. This is what Paul is pointing us to here in verses 8 and 9. He wants us to understand that God's plan was not to bring salvation to the Jews to the exclusion of the Gentiles. On the contrary, it was always God's plan to include the Gentiles in his blessings by way of the Jewish people. We know this, right? God promises Abraham that he will not only bless him, but that in him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We see this promise 
which is from Genesis 12, repeated in Genesis 18 when Abraham is visited by three men who announce to Abraham that his wife Sarah will have a son. It's repeated again in Genesis 22 after God supplies an offering in order that Abraham won't have to sacrifice Isaac. God will then repeat the promise to Isaac in Genesis 26. Paul understands that the fulfillment of the promise to the patriarchs widens the circle for the whole world. This is why Paul calls Abraham the heir of the world back in chapter 4 of Romans. It was according to God's saving purposes and for the purpose of his glorification that Abraham would be the father of both Jews and Gentiles. But this idea that both Jews and Gentiles would be recipients of the covenantal blessings of God is not just a theme that runs through Genesis. In fact, it runs through the entirety of the Old Testament, as Paul will show in the next few verses. So quoting from each of the three sections of the Jewish scriptures, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, Paul substantiates this claim that the Gentiles have been included, revealing that it has always been God's intention that his mercy to Israel spill over to the Gentiles so that they can join together in praising his name. But Paul is perhaps doing here far more than we realize. These four seemingly simple quotations from Deuteronomy, the Psalms, and the prophet Isaiah are used not just as proof texts, but mindful of the context from which they have come. The quote, the first quote in verse 9 appears in 2 Samuel 22 and in Psalm 18. Psalm 18 is a psalm of David in which David praises God for subduing the nations under him. It's safe to assume that Paul is reading the psalm typologically, meaning the I and the me in the verses preceding this quotation would be read as Jesus. So listen, you made me, Jesus, the head of the nations. People whom I, Jesus, had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Paul's audience would have been reminded of God's plan to bring Gentiles under the umbrella of the Messiah's rule. Using Psalm 18 here then is no proof text. We also know the context of this next quote in verse 10 from Deuteronomy. Paul has already used a quote from the same passage in Deuteronomy back in Romans 9. Or Romans 10 rather. If you recall, this is Paul's discussion of how the Gentiles are being used to make the Jews jealous. This argument is based on a quote from the same chapter in Deuteronomy. Again, Paul uses a verse which is rooted in a context that involves the inclusion of the Gentiles among God's people. Next, he quotes Psalm 117. This psalm is a psalm we use for our call to worship this morning. It's a psalm that calls for the worship of peoples of all nations. Why? For great is his steadfast love, his covenantal love and mercy toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. These are the precise blessings which Paul has just mentioned in verses 8 and 9. And finally, Paul quotes Isaiah 11.10. 
Isaiah is rich in language and imagery concerning the spread of salvation throughout the whole world. Just read through the servant songs of Isaiah 40 through 55. Anyhow, Isaiah 11.10 is not only revealing that the Gentiles will participate in the worship of God, but Isaiah is also revealing how this will come about through the root of Jesse, or in other words, by way of the Messiah. God has desired to be merciful to peoples of all nations and to be worshipped by them. And in Jesus, this desire is realized. These quotes are a snapshot of Scripture's overwhelming voice concerning God's intention for the nations to come and worship him. If we just look at the prophets and Psalms alone, we would find prophecy like Zechariah or Zephaniah 3, 9, and 10, where the Lord says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Or how about Malachi 1.11? For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. We find mention of the nations joining in the worship of God in Daniel and Ezekiel and Habakkuk. And let's not forget Jonah. How about the psalm? Psalm 66. Shout for joy to, the, to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Or Psalm 67. Let the nations be glad and sing for you. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Or in Psalm 97, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Again and again and again we find this theme. But I don't think what Paul is doing here is simply pointing out that the Gentiles have been received into the people of God and thus should be welcome to worship God and their, with their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't get me wrong, I don't want to downplay the importance of that point. Paul certainly wants the Jewish and Gentile Christians in the church in Rome to realize that the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down in Christ and that they have therefore been called to be unified in him. This is of great importance. However, I think that Paul is simultaneously addressing a local issue and pointing beyond it. And I think the key is placing this passage not just in the context of what precedes it, but also in the context of what is yet to come. So now we return to where we began. Paul's concern in the letter is about God being praised and glorified throughout all the earth. Paul, in the rest of chapter 15, is about to move seamlessly into a section about his ministry to the Gentiles. It's a word about mission. Paul said at the very beginning of this letter, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul here in chapter 15 is linking his mission to the Gentiles, to the nations, to the ends of the earth 
with this inclusion of the Gentiles in the worship of the one true God. Worship and mission are inextricably bound together. I want us to think about this for just a moment. It has been said at a very basic level, the church exists for only two purposes. To worship God and to fulfill the mission mandate of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. But we can take that one step further. The mission of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth is for the purpose of bringing people from every tribe, language, people, group, and nation to do what? To worship God. Worship is the ultimate goal of mission. And in the end, when God's kingdom comes in its fullness, mission will cease and only worship will remain for all of eternity. This is what we see in Revelation. We see people of every tribe, language, people, group, and nation gathered around the throne of God worshiping him. So while this specific issue facing the church in Rome in Paul's day might have been unique To that time and place, Paul's vision, as scholar Douglas Moo states, ultimately transcends the Jewish-Gentile debate. God wants his church to be a place that transcends any cultural, racial, or ethnic division in a unity based on the gospel. Why? Because if we wish to glorify God, to show him as he really is, then our worship better reflect his kingdom. But not only this, our worship should also propel us into the world to carry out God's mission for the church, which is to bring worshipers from every tribe, language, people, group, and nation before the throne of God. So what happens locally has global implications. Worship, as John Piper states, is the fuel and goal of missions. Mission begins and ends in worship. Mission begins and ends in worship. This means that what we do in this place matters for more reasons than we often realize. We together with one voice give glory to God, but what we do in here should also create in us a zeal that God would be glorified in all the earth. We should desire to see God receive the glory due his name. We should long to see God's name become great among the nations. That begins in worship. From this passage, we get the same vision that Paul had. Paul's singular focus in his mission work is to reach people at the ends of the earth with the gospel. But for him, it isn't about saving souls. It's about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in order that people might come to know God, in order that people might come to worship God in that knowledge. It is mission for the sake of worship. So in the end, it isn't just about getting people saved. It's about getting God glory. It is mission for the sake of worship, for the sake of glory. Are you with me? Stephen Hawthorne, who is the director of Waymakers, which is a mission and prayer mobilization ministry, says this. World evangelization is for God. It is common to work out of a concern for the predicament of people, either to see them saved from hell or to see them serve to communal wholeness or both. Such compassion is biblical and necessary. 
However, our love for people takes on balance and power when our overriding passion is for God to be honored by the kindness extended in his name and even more for God to be thanked personally by the people transformed by the power of the gospel. I think Hawthorne is on to something that Paul was attuned to. Mission is first and foremost about God's glory. And it is that focus which should drive our passion for mission in evangelism. We should desire that God would be glorified among us and among those with whom we have contact. Our evangelism which seeks to bring about redemption and reconciliation in Jesus Christ should bring us together to worship the Lord with one voice, even as our worship, as I have said, propels us outward again to continue to share the gospel in order that others would join us in worshiping the Lord. So mission is the means by which all of the nations are brought to worship God for the purpose of God receiving the glory he is due. If you really think about it, mission is about liberating people from serving and worshiping other gods. That they might serve and worship the one true God. Everyone is worshiping and serving something, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ frees them to serve and worship the God for whom they were created to worship. Have you ever thought about mission in this way? Have you ever considered that our primary concern in mission is not necessarily for other people, it's really for God and his glory? We do mission because we first love God. We love God so much that we want to see him be glorified. We want him to be honored. We want him to be revered. We want others to stand in awe of him as we stand in awe of him. We want God to be worshipped. Certainly we love others. We love others because they are created in God's image. We know, however, that it's through worshipping God that they receive God's blessing though, right? This is the amazing thing about glorifying God through worship. We are blessed in return. Hawthorne comments, why is God so desirous of worship? Two reasons. He is delighted by the sincere love that comes to him in true worship, but there is more. By wooing people into true worship, God is able to fully bestow his love upon them. There is nothing more splendid or majestic for humans than to be elevated and placed in the gorgeous, heart-stopping grandeur of God's regal presence. Worship is a way that people glorify God. When looked at it from God's point of view, we can see that worship is also God's way of glorifying people in all the best sense of bringing people into their highest honor. Worship fulfills God's love. He loves people so vastly that he wills to exalt them to something better than greatness. He wants to bring them into an honored nearness to him. This is what Psalm 16 teaches us, isn't it? In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's beautiful. If our focus isn't first and foremost on loving and glorifying God, then our love for others, in a way, works itself out. When we concern ourselves for God's glory by leading others to worship him, we are inherently loving them. We're helping them to be free to do what they are created to do. They're brought into the presence of the one whom they were created for, and by extension, they are blessed by the presence of God. 
I think that this is at least partially what Paul's benediction here in verse 13 is pointing us to. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. By summoning others to come and worship God, we are summoning summoning them to find in God their hope. God is the supreme object of our hope. He is also the object of our praise and our worship. Coming into his presence to worship him, we are coming into the presence of the one in whom there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. By worshiping God, we receive these blessings of God's presence. Paul is praying for us to be filled with hope because insofar as we have hope in God, we will find in him all of our delight. He is our joy and our peace. We want others to come to God, to be satisfied in him, to find in him all of their delight, to find in him all of their joy and their peace. And by worshiping him, God is glorified. Dearly beloved, as we draw near to the end of Paul's letter to the Romans, it's my hope and prayer that we would not simply say, gosh, it's so wonderful what God has done for me. Look at what he saved me from. Rather, I hope that we would see the fullness of what the Apostle Paul has laid out for us. I hope we would see that it isn't strictly about what we've been saved from. It's more so about what we've been saved for. Paul gives us a vision of the glory of God in our part in giving glory to God. Paul showing us how God's story is a story of glory. Our role is not only to be redeemed and reconciled, but to turn and to rejoice and to call others to do the same thing. It is to have a desire like Paul's, which wants nothing more than for others to be brought into this thing that we were created for. May God receive all the glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, I pray that you would fill us with a desire and a passion To see your name be exalted in all the earth. To see peoples of every tribe and language and people group. People of every nation come and to worship you. To give you glory. Help us to be a people who with a unified voice worships you. And gives a demonstration that is visible to the world of the joy and the peace that comes from being in your presence. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In response to the gospel, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed.